You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome once again, everybody, to the Sectarian Review Podcast. As always, I am your host, Danny Anderson. I teach English normally at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania, and I do this little podcast on the side. If you uh, like the show, I'd like it if you went to iTunes and left a nice review for us. I haven't checked that for a few weeks. I don't know if there's any new ones up there or not, but uh, but that would be that helps other people find us. And uh, and also, it's been fun to uh, interact with folks on social media. So if you want updates, related articles, that kind of thing, like the Facebook. Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and uh, and we'll get you involved in the show that way. It's great to hear from you. And in fact, that is how my guest today um, found the show. That's why he's on today. He's sort of a regular uh, Twitter follower, and he's doing something really interesting, and I'll get into that in a minute. Uh, if you listen to the last episode, this is or recent episodes, I'm not sure what order these are coming out in, actually. Uh, I have a new initiative, a new sort of goal for the year, is I'd like to involve creators in the show. I'd like to interview people who do things. Uh, today I'm interviewing a poet. If you're a, bro- a blogger or a podcaster, you do something interesting, by all means, contact the show and uh, and share with the world what you're doing. Uh, I'd like to make this a kind of an ongoing conversation and a network building establishment. I've noticed around the uh, studios here, the Inferno studios here at Mount Aloysius College, I've got little pictures of bridges all over the place and I've never psychoanalyzed myself, but I, I think I subconsciously think of myself as a bridge builder and uh, maybe I should start using the show for that. And so, um, let me, uh, jump right into the show today. Joining me today is Christopher Buckley. Chris, how you doing? Really well, thank you. Good to be here. Chris is a super fan. We have a, a number of like stable fans, right? Uh, that you know always interact with the show, do a great job of uh, of sharing it on their own social media and uh, and following up with stuff we talk about. And Chris is definitely one of those people. Uh, and Chris also happens to be a poet, and so he has a book, uh, a, a chat book of poetry called Bluing, which I want to talk about the title. And and I found out through his Twitter feed that he was uh, publishing this and I went and ordered it and I really, really loved it. And so I asked Chris if he'd want to come on the show to talk about it. And he was gracious enough to do so. It was another one of these West Coast, East Coast things, but we finally made it happen. Um, And so, and in fact, I'm keeping him from the national championship uh, football game of college football right now, which I don't personally care about. Um, I'm checking the score. It's, uh, I don't know versus who gives a crap. Um, And so, um, but but, uh, but Chris is joining me uh, today. Um, how are you? So you're in Seattle, right, Chris? I am in Seattle. Yes. Okay. And you are not a poet by occupation. I am not. I am uh, one of those uh, rare breeds of uh, you know folks who come into poetry not through the world of academia, but uh, just through practice, hobby, and the good people you surround yourself with. I, I'm always interested because people always lament the decline of poetry in our society, right? And, and so how is it that it exists outside of the, to me, confines of academia? Like, what is it that, uh, how is it that you discovered poetry? Well, you know, I, yeah, there's a lot in there. Two, two, different, uh, two different responses there. I'll go with the second one first. Uh, 
the way that I discovered it, of course, was, you know, through school, but at a very early age. I mean, I think I was in elementary school uh, in California where I grew up. We did a lot of, you know, focused writing and poetic forms starting in like fifth grade. That's, uh, I think, when we get are introduced to the idea of the haiku. Ah. And, uh, but I had a. <clears throat> I had a, a fun moment or two there where very young, I think, I think fifth grade, you know, we started writing, um, you know, writing pieces in class, but then they would be shared and submitted in, in, in civic opportunities. I had a haiku that I wrote in elementary school that ended up getting sent to our sister city in Japan. And so suddenly it was this, this uh, instant interconnect, an intercultural bridge building moment that, uh, uh, I think sort of stuck with me, you know, rather like your bridge photos. Yeah. And, um, and so it, it, it always, it just sort of entered into my, my attention as something, something that you could do. I, I couldn't draw. I had friends, I, I you know, as you know, I'm a huge comics geek, you yes. know, so you thought that, uh, you know, as a teen boy growing up, I might've been, you know, the, the sketch artist like everybody else was, I couldn't draw my way out of a paper bag, <laughs> but I could write. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, and that stuck with me throughout high school into college. But you know, my my education wasn't, you know, wasn't in literature in the arts. You know, all the modern thought and literature folks at Stanford that I hung out with. But I, w- I was a human biology major, and uh, in the process of that, um, in grad school, I went. Uh, I, I grew up a, a Protestant and went to to seminary in the tradition that I grew up in, and. And during that time, I, I hadn't written, you know, poetry for the sake of art for, for many, many years, but it was in the, the process of going through seminary, trying to discern whether that was a path for me or not, that I, I spent two years working as a, as a hospital chaplain mm. at the Stanford and Packard Children's Hospitals and their residency program there. And, and it was in the process of that um, and this really wonderful, supportive interfaith group of resident chaplains like me that some of the reflections that we were writing and the self-examination we were doing, I, I started, I suddenly found myself going back and writing as, as poetry. And it wasn't until a, this is my you know mid-20s at this point, it wasn't in, until I did that that you know one of my colleagues uh, looked at that and said, wow, you're, you're a poet. I said, really? Oh, uh, okay, you know, and I, I didn't really think of, think of that. And, uh, but after that, I, I think that was really kind of the, the spot that turned me on because I noticed that after that, I, I started seeking out poetry to read. You know, I was looking for poets specifically either connected to things that I cared about or the places where I, I, I lived and, and was, was, you know, kind of seeking out the words that were the, that were the, uh, the, 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 the understructure of, of those places. So as I was uh, going through my 20s and 30s and, and entering into, uh, you know, a, a different professional space, I, I ultimately, you know, graduated from seminary and decided that that wasn't my calling. I was grateful for that time, but I ended up entering into a professional career. And uh, that's where I really started writing seriously. So, you know, in the late 90s or so, mid to late 90s, I began really writing and reading in earnest and starting to submit. It wasn't really until, it never really took off though, never got any traction. Um, got a, a piece or two in a small, you know, small journal here or there back then. And I, I kind of had to let it go away for you know, maybe 15 years uh, while 
you know, I, I started entering into family life, you know, becoming a parent, becoming a husband. And uh, it wasn't until moving to Seattle that I suddenly, <clears throat> the, the conditions and the, the life circumstance sort of uh, tied together in a way that made it not only expedient to write, but with natural outlets to share the writing, to improve the writing, and also the technology, frankly, to submit the writing. Mm. Um, you know, the way that as a, whether you're a professional writer or a um, avocational writer like myself, the way that you submit and track uh, submissions across multiple publications is a lot. It's, it's you know, there's a, there's an app for that now. That there, <laughs> of course there is. <laughs> yeah, that there wasn't back then. And so it suddenly becomes, the, the barrier to entry, I think, is markedly different uh, this decade than it was, you know, a decade and a half ago. And it became very easy to start sharing the work that I had created in my backlog, trying to, you know, shop it around, um, manage withdrawals, uh, you know, resubmit, multiple submit, and uh, it made it a lot easier to get traction. And um, yeah, and, and you've published um, uh, in the last few years. Then, since you started um, getting things out there, um, in what kinds of journals? You know, it, it's uh, it's an interesting mix, and it's always exciting when you get a piece accepted because. Uh, it uh, you know you, you try to see if there is a thread between the different kinds of journals and and it's wonderfully diverse. Um, I, I would say I've got a, a small core of uh, pieces that appear in specifically journals about spirituality and poetics. Okay. Places like uh, Rock and Sling out of uh, Whitworth University here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, Tiferet, which is a, a, a journal of, you know, Tikkun Olam in the Jewish tradition, you know, the healing of the world and, and peace and, and justice issues. Um, I, I believe I've got one coming out uh, later this year, an image journal here from Seattle, which is, you know, poetry within the Judeo-Christian tradition. But that's certainly not, uh, that's certainly not everything, you know, there are, you know, for lack of a better word, secular literary journals that uh, I've I've had pieces land in. Um, so you know, it's 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 about just researching, reading a lot of the journals that are out there, seeing the ones that you like, yeah. where you might have an overlap yourself, and uh, you know, keeping them on uh, on a short list of of journals that you follow and that you're looking for open submission calls for. And, and I don't know how, if any of my students listen to this show actually, but uh, uh, reading, if you want to be a writer, reading is very important, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Not only to help you develop as a writer, but also in order to enter into these communities, really. I mean, speaking the language that they speak and, and, and getting to know those uh, communities, that is a really important thing. A couple of things I want to just sort of pick up on about what you've said here. Um, one is the importance of community. I think I just mentioned that word. Uh, it seems to be someone had to tell you that you were a poet, right? Um, and, and so I think um, all, all the way back there. And then when you moved to Seattle, you do, I read somewhere in your biography, you, you uh, perform pretty regularly at a, uh, a local coffee shop or something. I forget what it is. I forget what the yeah. place is. And, and so, yeah, um, like that's an important aspect of your, of your work, right? Right from the beginning and all the way through the practice of it. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's critical for the, 
you know, I, I actually consider it part of my writing process. In fact, um, you know, I, I was going to pile on to what you were saying that reading really is critical both in both senses of the word, mm-hmm. you know, re- reading what others have written and then reading what you've written and listening to the response. That's usually the last step in my composition. You know, I like to say I, I carry a little moleskin journal around with a, you know, number two pencil in it. And that's where I do. That's what I use to find the words. Um, you know, my kind of my next step is is shaping them on a keyboard, you know, to really kind of shape and edit the words. But then the next step in the writing process is to go to a uh, this this uh, reading community that I'm part of here. It's the, we call it the Easy Speak Open Mic up in the Wedgwood neighborhood of Seattle, which is a, a wonderful mixture of, of regional uh, writers and musicians that gather every other Monday night to, you know, read each other their work and, and respond and appreciate. And, and, uh, and that's critical because reading it there allows me to listen to myself for the first time. It's amazing. Even without the audience, I will suddenly discover, oh, all these line breaks are wrong. You know, the, the scansion is all wrong. I need to, to reshape it this way. It looked right when I was typing it, but it sounds wrong coming off the tongue. And that mm-hmm. balance between breath and ear is really, really key. But then more more than that, too, is listening to where the small sounds from the audience pop in, you know, where somebody reacts to something or somebody laughs at something that, oh, you didn't realize that was unintentionally funny or, or the, the small gasp and or you know where, where people really kind of get that heart moment with a line or a turn of phrase all of that is part of kind of the final draft <laughs> you know that you take it back and then you make the poem look like what you heard coming back from the audience you know and, and that's when it's ready to submit yeah yeah i um i've not i'm not a creative artist at all i, I wish i had that sort of discipline um I, you know everyone yeah, so has do I. I. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't either so that's the amazing part <laughs> but um i do love the community that, that uh, surrounds itself and one of the things i really miss a really formative point in my life was i lived in new york in the, in the late 90s and uh i used to go to this open mic um every week just to watch the performers and and you know i got to sort of know some of them over time every every monday night i'd go down to the east village to alphabet city to this little place the sidewalk cafe which i think Mm. is still operational um and there would be you know poets and there would be uh, mostly musicians they had their own sort of house style back in that day they called it anti-folk i think is what they was the term they used um but uh but it was uh, it was so much fun and and incidentally uh, the the great artist regina specter uh, i remember seeing her at that in those days at that place when she was trying out her stuff so i was there at the genesis of her career uh, but yeah there's something about those kinds of um creative spaces those creative community spaces where that is just really special and, and seeing unfinished ideas bouncing off of other people um, I really think it's sort of like a, a social ideal for myself and I really wish I could find something like that where I live now but yeah that that's uh, that brings back some good memories what you're describing there um, another thing that um, is interesting about you is um, um, what what industry do you work in it's, it's in the tech field somewhere right yeah, sort of tangentially. I work for uh, one of the big four, um, you know, professional services and consulting firms, and uh, I, <laughs> I, what I do is uh, rather than bore you to death with a job title, I, I, it's my job to work with technology consultants who are selling, you know, big, you know, big service contracts to other companies. 
uh, I like to tell them I'm I'm the one non-consultant in the room. It's, <sighs> it's my job as the as the uninformed uh, out or as the informed outsider uh, to take your writing in these new business proposals and to you know streamline it into the best kind of reading experience possible so that the 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 clients that you're trying to get this business from can actually understand what you're writing about you know take it down from a technical manual and turn it into an you know an actual promise to people with problems rather than machines and wires so interesting sort of yeah it's like one part it's one part editor one part writer one part um, project manager a uh, whole lot of politics and uh, working closely with uh, with a visual designer, you know, to help lay out the document, do all the visual design and stuff like that. And there's some interesting parallels between that and your your open mic experience, right? The 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 sort of um, iron sharpening iron experience of uh, of using one's expertise and, and insight and, and taste to uh, to make something better uh, for someone else. And I, I think that that's that's really fascinating. But um, What's also fascinating, or what I, what I love, what I like to do with this show, how I imagine it working anyway for people, is I'm kind of bored with academia as an end and of itself, right? And so I don't really like to work on uh, the kind of writing that only professional academics, all other English professors may or may not read, right? And so um, I, I like the show because it's a way to kind of take what's really cool about academia and bringing it out into the world of people who have, you know, real jobs, <laughs> let's just say, uh, you know, uh, other jobs at least, right? And, uh, and, and to kind of make it really relevant to me. It doesn't matter um, how smart I am if the rest of the world doesn't appreciate it in some way, if, if it's cloistered off from the rest of the world. And so um, to me, that's re it's really great to see someone who is working in the real world. And I, I hate to use that world, uh, that, that, that metaphor. Academia is a real world. Uh, and, and so I yeah. always try to... Yeah stop my students from using that term and here I am using it myself, but who are in other non-academic jobs, right? Mm -hmm. um, but are sort of engaged in poetry and art in the way that we are within English departments of academia. I think it's sort of like a human ideal. And, and so that's, uh, we'll talk more about, oh, this is a good opportunity to get into the poetry now. Um, but those are some things that sort of stand out to me about uh, what you've just said. You serve as a kind of um, bridge between academia and the world that we should be serving right and, and i think that's what's really great about your poetry and that's why i wanted to give you a voice here on the show so other people can discover what you did it's a really uh, great little collection called bluing by finishing line press and so um, i'll put links on the show notes to where you can find the book and uh and also you mentioned some of the journals that you um publish in i jotted those names down i'll put those in the show notes as well too um just because it's a great resource i've read many of those journals myself already and so i think those are uh things that people should know about if they don't already. Um, but um, real quickly, I meant to get into this earlier. Um, you mentioned being a big pop culture fan. Um, I, and in the planning for this, we talked about I was going to take my kid to see Aquaman, right? Oh, and, and, yes. What did you think? I loved it. I thought Aquaman <laughs> was great. And, and you're, I know I'm always on this show trying to defend the DC Cinematic Universe, and you're one of my few allies out there. <laughs> Twitter. Oh yeah, and so <laughs> before we get into the poetry, I want to step into the world of pop culture. Oh, and and dive. Can, yeah. <laughs> can you um, defend the DC Cinematic Universe and particularly maybe Aquaman? 
Oh, well, yeah. I mean, what my, my biggest hope for Aquaman is that enough people will see it and say, oh, Jason Momoa was awesome in that. What did, I, I, didn't know awesome, uh, I, I didn't know Aquaman was anything but that guy in the orange shirt with the octopus. <laughs> and that they'll like go back and you know maybe check out his parts in Justice League that everybody ignored because you know he was really the heart and soul of the good parts of that movie as well. But yeah, the, D, the DC Extended Universe, uh, you know... I, Granted, I grew up on Adam West and Christopher Reeve, you know, so <laughs> there's an obvious emotional shift in tone. And I was one of the fiercest critics of the way they started it off, uh, you know, under the, the Zack Snyder direction, just because Batman has been successfully, you know, reinvested and reinvented in his, you know, Frank Miller, uh, grim and gritty mode doesn't mean that the entire world of superheroes has to be grim and gritty mm. that's not why people love these characters you know and and i think they they kind of got off on a bit of a rocky start although they had some high points in the first couple of films but you know from from certainly from wonder woman on there has been where they're presenting the characters as someone to love you know and and someone to really enjoy and find wonder in which is the reason why you know as an eight-year-old i opened up a comic book in the first place and aquaman just go you know no pun intended goes off the deep end into <laughs> into all the greatness of the you know classic ramona freedom um you know aquaman stories of the 60s and 70s and some of the the, the great lines they take they take the kind of rough pirate reinvention of him from the 90s that's been one of his more successful incarnations they had brilliant casting and saying ah jason momoa is the guy to to play <laughs> that role and uh and they even had this weird it was weird to me but it worked perfectly they uh, did you get a sense of there being this kind of like 80s action vehicle vibe to it in terms of the way that they were like there were there were the, like the, the fly around scenes and the soundtrack had this kind of Blade Runner Vangelis feel to it. Yeah. Um, the, because you know, Atlantis is so futuristic looking, right? And yeah. I think it does definitely evoke that. And there are like nods to the Brendan Fraser mummy films. I mean, it, oh, it, yeah. it, it does really like um, kind of just bask in fun <laughs> nostalgia. It, yeah. There's just, there's just a lot of fun to it. And you know, it, it's, it's neat too, because Aquaman, is sort of the running joke of anybody who likes superheroes because he actually does have this great rich backstory and this great rich set of characters and and um and pathos and i mean it's 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 just all the arthurian i mean his name is arthur for god's sake you know yeah, it's yeah. all the arthurian stuff yeah. crammed in there there's there's murdered sons and king <laughs> you know and uh and yet everybody always sees him as the guy from the Super Friends. So I just loved that all of this was getting surfaced for people to enjoy. And hopefully we'll see a sequel. Yeah. Oh, I think I would love to see. It. I think that they're crazy if they don't because I thought that, I thought it was tremendous and it was a lot of fun. And uh, and uh, and I've actually seen it twice now. So, yeah, I think uh, I think Aquaman's great. So I just wanted to give you a chance to, just so they know that you're a really well-rounded person. You know, you have, <laughs> you have science, you have religion. Hey, I am waiting on Shazam now. Are you kidding? <laughs> I saw the preview for that when I was in the movies. That's that's right. Um, and so, um, and incidentally, before we, so I, I'd mentioned, uh, you'd mentioned before your, um, uh, you know, clerical background and um, you are now Catholic, right? I did. Yes, I, I, I am. I am a, uh, I, I converted after seminary, after a brief flirtation with uh, the Episcopal Church and uh, then got all liturgical and sacramental and ended up swimming the Tiber back to Rome. Okay. That's a joke. 
<laughs> and and I, I only bring that up because I think it's it's uh, it comes out in the poetry, uh, and I think that there's um, definitely um, a opportunity for us to talk about that. So really interesting guy, Chris Buckley. Uh, no relation to um, the William Fs of the world, I assume. I, yeah, right? not that I've ever been able to discover, and it, it's kind of that, that's one of the reasons I had to go with C W Buckley on the cover because, you know. There's the famous Christopher Buckley, William F. Buckley's son. There's, in fact, another poet named Christopher Buckley out of Northern California. So, you know, I'm always afraid people are going to think him. I'm him slipping. Gosh, uh, you've got my problem. I have the world's most boring name, Daniel Anderson, <laughs> right? And so, yeah, I've actually played someone with my name in a chess tournament once. Uh, and so, yeah, you, you have my problem. So, um, well, let me let me get into uh, the, the the volume itself here. In 20 minutes of introduction here, so. Um, Bluing is a really interesting name, and it's B L U I N G. And this is a, there's a really that's a, a metaphor um, that is or that is really super interesting, and I was totally unaware of it until I, I read some of the background material for your book. So, can you explain what bluing is and how it relates to your approach to poetry? Yeah, certainly. I uh, bluing is a forgotten laundry detergent essentially it is way back in the days of you know my great grandparents when you would before we had bleach if you wanted to make your whites whiter you didn't use bleach you used bluing you would be boiling the whites with bluing which is a ferrous compound it's actually blue it mixes in with the water and uh, when you pull the white fabrics out on a sunny day it kind of creates that uh, you know that effect when you wore a pair of brand new white sneakers as a kid on a cloudy day and they kind of glowed. Yeah. Um, that's what it does to your whites. It tricks the eye through a bit of an optical imagery into seeing white where what you're really seeing is radiant blue reacting to the sunlight. And uh, it, it became sort of a metaphor for I realized what I was doing throughout the rest of the, the piece, which it, it, it's something that is still around. You can buy it in the supermarket. There's a famous brand of it that you, when you see it on the shelf now, it's going to look like this total throwback to the, you know, the 1920s. But it's still there. You can get it. But nobody knows what it is. And you know, maybe some people use it to like, you know, restore faded blue jeans that sort of thing and mm -hmm. and i realized it's it's sort of a symbol of things that once were obvious that now are not and um which I, to me was it was almost sort of a diagnosis of our entire culture at large you know things that in the midst of you know new new pop culture new technology that's just constantly disrupting and reinventing and reinventing how do you hold on to what how do you know what 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 lasts? How do you hold on to it? How, and is it perhaps the part of the, um, if not every human, but certainly the, the the writer, to try to be the ambassador of of those things that matter and those things that last? Try to carry them forward and 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 assign them meaning, show them what they are to uh, to the world. So I, uh, I I found myself using that as an image in one of the poems that became the opening of the piece, and I, I suddenly realized, yeah, that's the title for the the whole piece. It's like the method of your poetry, almost, right? Um, and yeah. and it's it's interesting that you reference it as being some sort of ancient thing from your great grandparents, right? Um, because you mentioned somewhere in, in our correspondence that um, 
that writing in the last days of your your grandmother's life, uh, mm-hmm. th- there's some some relationship to this theme about like recovering what was what has been lost to sort of not just the passage of time, but just the the quickness with which we move through things, right? Uh, and and so it isn't just that time has passed; it's just that we move through things so fast that we don't notice details anymore. And I think that's and a th- that things live in you. Yes. And suddenly, you, my my grandmother. Many of you probably know her. You you being my your Danny's listeners. Many of you may have known her from. Uh, from Facebook and Instagram, she was that 99-year-old woman who became the homecoming queen uh, in that viral oh. video that went around. And, oh, my um, gosh. I'll put a link to that. Oh, okay. Yeah, she okay. Was a sweet, wonderful person. Um, she was one of the last Rosie the Riveters, you know, who was uh, still with us until just uh, about two years ago. And um, But it hit me one night. You know, coming coming home late from the office job I talked about before, and I was stopping at this neighborhood cafe and decompressing with my journal and was writing, and I found myself writing a piece, and I, I was struck by the idea that so much of the world that she saw as, you know, that she grew up in that was just totally obvious and unquestioned to her now only lived in her memory Mm. and it you know the entire world of the colorado farm that she left before the dust bowl um is just is just gone that entire way of life and that the more the older that she was getting the fewer people of her cohort were there with her until finally i've seen her almost as this sort of um you know unintentional archivist of this past you know, world. And as her own memory was changing and she was dealing with dementia, you know, during the last parts of her lives, that fragility of it, you know, it's like the ultimate, it's, it's the ultimate moral equivalent of the, of the data loss, you know, that we all fear in our professional and digital lives. Um, you know, so it just, it just, it struck me as kind of a, a, a unique malady for our own times. At what point will we find ourselves the ambassador for things that, well, you know, we're, of course we know what that is that, you know, everybody knows what, uh, you know, everybody knows who Aquaman is, right. You know, right. And, and maybe there will be some day when, you know, no, I'm like the last person who remembers this, you know, this is like something from way, way, way back. And, and this is, you know, a fear of English professors all the time. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure everyone has their version of nobody reads this anymore and they should, right? Uh, for me, it's Bernard Malamud. I think that this is something that's sadly become lost uh, to, to too many people. But, um, but yeah, this idea of like losing touch with something important from the past and you being kind of the last representative of that. Um, it, um, well, I, there's a line from there, the, from the Philip Larkin poem, Church Going, that, that sort of reminds me of this a little bit, um, uh, this idea of mourning the passing of cathedrals, not so much because he was a believer, the, the speaker of that poem, but um, because it it was a part of the culture. It was the, the what bound the culture together and what happens when that is sort of when no one goes to them anymore. Right. And so, um, and so the, someone, that poem is about somebody thinking, you know, deeply deep thoughts about that sort of thing. Um, but you, it also is related then to the concept of nostalgia. And this is something yeah. that is a theme in the poetry. And so, I mean, there's like a reference to, I think Janis Joplin in the first poem and uh, of the collection. And so I, do you want to talk about nostalgia? Cause it, I feel like you've got conflicted feelings about it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, okay. I am 
so guarded about it because it's it's such a trap it is such a trap for writers of any stripe but especially for poets i think um to to just want to dive into that angst the nostalgia the heartache of something that once was and is no more because you know oh gosh you know that that's 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 romantic poetry writ large that's what we're all told the value you know when we're teenagers and and uh, and it's it's a real trap you know nostalgia there it needs to be a starting point it shouldn't be an end in itself and i really 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 struggle because it's so easy for me as a jumping off point when i start to write and i'm always questioning oh, am i just writing the same thing again you know i am i saying something new about this or am i just plumbing the feeling through an image and um uh yeah yeah so no, nostalgia's nostalgia is a tool for the writer because it is yeah, you know, again, with my grandmother toward the end of her life, I was, uh, you know, I was staying out at her house, um, you know, the last Christmas that she was alive together, that she was alive, I was visiting my hometown. And so my family and I were staying in her house where, you know, I had, you know, partially grown up all those years when and then I was visiting her during the days at her, her assisted living community and and just oh you know the, the smell of being in the house and all the little things there that i used to play with and you know the the old chipped crockery and everything i mean it, it just obviously it just became fodder for you know a lot of the the writing and reflection that came out of that but you don't want to stay there you know um the the idea is to is to um not just to to wallow in the loss but to to claim what matters and to know that it has value regardless of how long it, it lasts and and you know to find if if that has any meaning at all then it's worth sharing with someone and trying to you know create some sort of artistic connection you know with i i, I like to say this kind of goes back to a tagline i sometimes use it's it's, it's like ratatouille you know anyone can can write uh anyone can write a poem um poetry is just baked into what we do it's it's when something in your inner world aligns with something in your outer world and you feel compelled to find exactly the right words to communicate that connection to someone else and um you know that that's it really i mean that that's kind of my school of poetics so you got to be really careful if if the only place you're going and staying is that, that nostalgic feeling. But, um, yeah, it, I mean, it, to me, it reminds me of what's so terrible about like bro country music, uh, the, you know, sort of modern radio pop country music is that it's all sort of images of small town life, you know, belt buckles and pickup trucks and cheap beer, you know what I mean? All these, it's just a a collection of these images of small town life as if they have any value in and of themselves. Right. And there's no sort of reflective moment. And so what you're trying to do is avoid, especially Gen X. I mean, I'm right in the middle of Gen X myself. Right. And so, um, I, I, um, I think I'm dead center. In fact, (laughs) if I think (laughs) if I looked at the last, uh, the range that they defined for Gen X. And so for my generation, it is particularly tempting to look back on the 1980s and and really just sort of um, try to live there. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And and it does have this. I think you wrote in your notes uh, a sense of decay <laughs> to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what you're trying to do then as a poet is 
not let the past go necessarily, but try to almost redeem it uh, in that way by kind of thoughtfully looking for it so that you can communicate to other people something useful about it. Am I, am I, or, and to take something useful from it, okay. you know, are there, are there lessons? Are there ways of thinking? Are there, are there things that matter that people don't know matter because we don't see that thing anymore? It's just faded into the background or it's been replaced with something else. And, um, you know, don't make the exactly. And especially for Gen X, don't make that fandom that music style that memory that you know that that ex boy or girlfriend uh you know some sort of idol that you're just constantly going back to you know how, how many grown-up gen x man boys do we know who are just you know deep into whatever their fandom is from their sixth grade year yeah. you know that now they've got the perfect collection and it's like you know okay well hey i've got my comic collection obviously but point is carry it forward what's what's a value how does it say something to those who come after you and, and for you poetry is the i think how did you put it, the spiritual tool uh for uh for doing this right um and so can i ask you to read the opening poem the world to come because i think th- that's the poem that stands out to me as the one that really gets into this concept um and particularly the last half of the poem um is that is that a possibility sure. yeah if you'd like to yeah yeah, and this is that one that I was writing in the little eatery on the way home where it kind of came together. Um, I call it The World to Come. The world is getting smaller, at least the one that matters most. The one I remember, the one that seemed so big when I was not, and now seems only strange. Pictures of Janis Joplin before I was born and she was gone, recall the loud and shaggy world dying in my infancy, living only in photographs and memory. How new, how free she must have felt. Did they know then what they had already given away? There are many words for losing it all. Freedom was never one of them. The word they were looking for is time. It's on my side, for now, and when the world is small enough, it will be on its own. It's not the things we lose, you see, but the fragments of the familiar that remain, unused and perplexing to all save those who remember, like Mrs. Stewart's bluing, which my great-grandmother used without a second thought doing laundry to trick the eye into seeing white Still there, yet unknown to all, except for restoring faded genes. Looking around, I wonder what obvious thing will be an artifact next. A light bulb? A radio? A song? A child? I will be their ambassador to the world to come. Ask, and I will tell you what they are for. That's great. And that last stanza is basically the poet right uh you are the one so you almost have a a pastoral role (laughs) in a poet as a poet then right yeah there's definitely sort of a a uh a, 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 a common priesthood, you know, to cop a, you know, religious language around it. This, this idea of, um, you know, you, you can embody this, 
well, uh, it's a harsh word, but a, the sacrifice, you know, sort of inside yourself and bring it and bring out of it, you know, something that blesses those around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, uh, yeah, and, and that was really kind of what was going on. I mean, I, I, that poem was born in me seeing a picture online, you know, of, of, uh, you know, I think it was one of those, you know, clickbaity articles, you know, where then and now, where would they have been? And, you know, 50 years ago this year, and, and there were pictures of Janis Joplin performing and it was a strangely, it was a strangely clear photo that didn't look like it had been taken, you know, just right after the summer of love. It looked like a contemporary photo. Mm. And, um, and there was this kind of jarring effect because it created the sense of, you know, I remember being little and seeing when all the big people dressed like that, you know, and thinking, oh, that's kind of weird and scary. It must be, you know, weird to be a grown up. And and now at the other end of history, you know, yeah, <laughs> looking back at that and the difference between the the the, the vibrant uh, excitement that was on her face in this photo and knowing what is, you know, what her ultimate what her ultimate fate was and became a symbol of kind of like that whole, that whole generation that, you know, was my childhood that, you know, nobody's, uh, that, that anybody, you know, born after me looking back at that is probably going to look at it and, and think it's just, it, it's, it's like an artifact from an alien culture. You know, what, yeah. what were they thinking? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the great line, I mean, that's a great poem, but the line that really stands out to me, there are many words for losing it all. Freedom was never one of them, right? That's yeah. the, a, a take on the freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, right? And uh, and so I think that uh, you, you there's like a critique built into the admiration uh, of, mm-hmm. of, of those images then. And I think that's what's different from what you're doing from nostalgia. That's what differs uh, from nostalgia in, the, in this work. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's great. And I it actually makes me wonder, because when I was a kid, that those images of 60s artists Jimi hendrix was really big amongst people my age led zeppelin like people like that um were still like revered this generation that came before them and i think largely on the basis of imagery <laughs> right because we weren't around to experience it and so uh the, but somehow the imagery still spoke to people of my generation and uh and, and tell record commercials what's that K-Tel record commercials. Remember those? Oh, mail? yes. <laughs> That's how the music carried on. You know, as a kid, you would hear it. You'd see the commercial. You'd see the scrolling song titles go up. You wouldn't know who the Rolling Stones were, but you know the uh, the opening to Brown Sugar because it was on that commercial. You know, That's so right. You're so <laughs> right, actually. <laughs> and and now I'm thinking of the the Coen Brothers film, A Serious Man, where oh, Santana yeah. Abraxas. I didn't order Santana Abraxas. <laughs> That's a great movie. I've got to do a show on A Serious Man someday. That would be good. Nobody ever talks about that film, and it was wow. Yeah, that was an interesting piece. Yeah, I've taught that movie many times. I love that movie, and so, um, but yeah, it got me off on another tangent there. Excuse me. Uh, my listeners are used to my what some people refer to as ADD, although I don't believe I actually have that, but uh, I think I'm just scatterbrained. But um, so they're used to following me around these rabbit holes sometimes. Um, and so, um, and it's also interesting to me now that I think about my generation, one thing that stands out to me about young these kids today, and I'm not saying this is a critique of these kids today, but the world they live in doesn't necessarily encourage them to look backwards at all, right? Every mm-hmm. when I w- When we were kids, there was not so many channels that were 
defined so specifically for such a small demographic. It was much more broadcasting in the broader mm-hmm. sense, right? And I remember watching reruns of I Love Lucy after school, right? And so I had this kind of matrix of references in my head from all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century, just from the culture I was consuming. And, sure. and young people today do not have that. Everything is utterly immediate, right? And, and um, I wonder if there's will be an opposite problem for people of today with a lack of nostalgia because <laughs> there's nothing to look back on almost. Mm. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting problem. Um, and, and, and so you better know, start making art now folks. Because <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and yeah, because it's all vines and <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, yeah. Uh, and, and to me, I, you misses me lamenting as an old person as well. So uh, I fully admit that. Um, so um, I want to get into the, the more religious aspects of this. Um, um, you'd mentioned Catholicism um, as something you kind of came into later. And the the responsibility you speak of in that first poem that we just read um, seems to me to have, like you said, I think you used the term, the priestly sort of um, responsibility. Um, so I think you talked about I don't know if you said burden or something along those lines. Uh, 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 there was some sort of uh, negative concept of, about some sort of uh, overbearing responsibility. Can you explain to me, read maybe read and talk me through the poem, It Comes Back Just As It Was? Um, mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. This is the poem that kind of stands out to me as being it seems to me very Catholic. <laughs> and so I don't know if that's your intent or me reading poorly. And so um, I would like to hear your perspective on this poem after hearing you read it. Sure. Sure. Um, well, yeah. Why don't I just read it and then I'll unpack it. I'm curious to hear what, what uh, comes out of it. Um, this is a piece that was published. It was one of my first pieces that got published by a, uh, you know, that, that, that began sort of my modern publishing run. Uh, it appears in a recent issue of our <clears throat> Rock and Sling journal, again, from Whitworth University. And, um, it comes back just as it was. Suddenly it leapt, vaulting over my head from the place where it slept on my back. Only then did I notice the fury, the fatigue I had carried as it scampered into the brush. My spoiled pack came undone. Every ration tin I hurled at its head missed completely. So I fled the forest, terrified, rather than face its shaggy band of brothers slinking around behind me. Surely, This time I had driven it off, once and for all, or so it seemed, when safe at home I made my coffee. A few sips only, piping hot, and there it was, sniffling beside my open door, asking me, pleading, really, have you, did anybody, has nothing been heard about me? How it shocked me gently sobbing with hand upraised like a boy hit much too often Uh, i am used to it a stammer before a flood of tears tell me is all the world as cold and dismal a place as this and moved with pity for once not anger i hoisted him sighing high upon my shoulders 
Yeah, I love that poem, and and uh, and it's uh, enigmatic to me, and so I, I'd love to hear um, something about what it. What were you thinking? Yeah, okay. Well, no, no, yeah, well, not necessarily. You don't necessarily have to explain the poem, but um, just sort of, yeah, maybe what you were thinking of. Well, I think there's a, I mean, it's actually a good one to unpack because it, especially if any, uh, it's a good poem to do a post-mortem on in, in this piece because there's a, there's a lot of things that mix in there. I, I do find that a lot of my writing usually – you, you know, I'll keep in my notebook something, of, hey, I think that'd be a good poem. But, you know, just writing about it never seems to work. And then I'll have another something that I'm like, hey, that'll be a good poem. And yeah, nothing comes out of that. And it's not until I take these two seemingly totally separate ideas and then munge them together mm. that suddenly you get this vibrant interplay of conflicting symbols and language and, and, and suddenly you get one poem where you thought maybe you had two. This is sort of an example of that. This is literally a... <laughs> This is a poem that I wrote uh, in the late 90s, so my late 20s. And uh, it was, uh, I was living in San Francisco, so part of the setting of the poem is it's a, it, it came from a dream that I had. And, um, and it was mixed with the, the old apartment that I was living in back then. But there's several images that get smooshed into this dream by my unconscious mind. Um, there when i was a kid oh okay so beside my famous grandmother uh for those of us danny who grew up my age you may remember that old um that old leonard nimoy tv paranormal show in search of search of that was my life i loved that That was your life (laughs) i love that stuff that's why i am who i am today probably (laughs) (laughs) hey see this is why we get on so well Do, do you remember the old Bigfoot episode. Oh yeah, and, yeah, and uh, there was Archie Buckley, who was the Bigfoot witnesser, who was like the center of that episode. That was my great uncle, and oh. so growing up, oh, my gosh, yeah, exactly. The universe <laughs> well, is just aligned for this episode. This is great. <laughs> Point of singularity. Uh, he, I, growing up, being around, you know, all the grownups at the family party, you would just be bombarded with, you know, every year of his life. He and my grandfather went out searching for unknown hominids in the Pacific Northwest and Northern California. And he was a believer. He saw it. He experienced it. And I loved it. And it scared the daylights out of me. And uh, because, you know, back then, I don't know if all you kids out there know, you know, Bigfoot wasn't like cool merchandising. He was scary. (laughs) You did not want to see one. (laughs) There was there was fear associated with it. So he became very early on this archetypal figure in my my nightmares and in my dreams um there you know if, if there was something if there was that 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 scary thing in my dreams it was some big shaggy you know um wild man of the woods peering from behind a tree or you know and and that that just that was just there and it just stuck with me i hadn't had a dream like that for many many years until this one night in my late 20s i think i was going through my um I was going through my uh, uh, a layoff, you know, which was a new experience to me, you know, during the dot com bust, mm-hmm. and uh, so obviously he started bubbling up in my nightmare life as a, uh, you know, as a uh, as an anxiety symbol. And before bed that night, I had just watched a PBS like masterpiece theater version of Nicholas Nickleby, okay. and the the character of Smike had a very um, touching moment with uh uh charlie hunnam's uh, nicholas nickleby you know who's now later famous for his role in sons of anarchy and uh and 
when I woke up, I had this, I had this dream about what was essentially a, a diminutive Bigfoot, you know, this big, shaggy, scary thing, you know, of my childhood had been kind of dwindled down into nothing. He was almost more frightening because he was, he was enfeebled and tiny and shriveled up and, and became this kind of, uh, in the dream, something that was stalking me, but stalking me unsuccessfully and, um, and visit then, you know, comes to visit me inside the apartment. So I kind of gave Smike's voice to him and made the poem a dialogue. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm copying lines from Charles Dickens there, sticking it in, you know, this, uh, diminutive, you know, dying Bigfoot (laughs) character. And it, it, it did create kind of an interesting tension in the piece. You know, it was, it was a strange thing. And I think that that taught me that poem itself taught me a lot uh, that I've now unconsciously then that I now try to consciously do now. It, it showed me, um, it showed me the power in seemingly unconnected things um, that if you push them together, suddenly start exploding language and meaning and, um, and and so that's now what what happened kind of automatically in a in an amateur way when I was doing that poem is something I'm trying to do more intentionally now as a writer. Oh, that's interesting. And so for you, it's much more sort of like psychological, right? There, there's some sort of uh, um, you know, phantom. That, uh, okay, that's very interesting. Um, I, I was reading it as a burden. That is, mm. um, <laughs> that is, uh, I mean, the, the thing slept on sleeping on my back, bearing something on your back, um, mm-hmm. s- speaks to me as something as you carrying some sort of burden that you would like to get rid of, but yes, but is also yeah. your responsibility. And therefore you feel like you take up that burden. And this is to me, like where I felt this was a very Catholic poem <laughs> because it's sort of taking your cross and, and sort well, of, it is. I, I very intentionally take language from the RSV in the last stanza. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a textual note in the new Testament where, uh, Oh, upon some healing, I can't remember exactly where it is, but I remember there's a, there's a spot where, uh, Oh, Jesus does a healing. And, uh, he is moved with pity yeah. for the man that reaches out to him. And then the textual note says, you know, um, uh, alternatively, anger. Like, well, you know, which is it, anger or pity? And so that really became kind of a capstone, this, this idea of this thing that I've been trying to get away from. Uh, suddenly in the light of day needs my help, you yeah. know, and I've got to, res- we're connected. You know, the, the, this chase is, uh, has bound us together and, and I have a responsibility, a solidarity with it. So I lift it back onto my shoulders at the end, you know, and now it's kind of this triumphant thing, like giving a, giving a child a piggyback ride, you know, it sort of transforms the monster now into from a burden, from a, a a pest or a fear into, you know, kind of, kind of, I guess it's sort of that Henri Nouwen, uh, wounded healer type thing going on. If we, if we uh, dig into it, you know, he, he becomes a uh, kind of a liberating moment as opposed to a, um, a trapping one. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's actually a great um, transition. My favorite um, poem in the collection is Like Trees Walking. Um, mm. And I, I asked you before if you could read that one for sure. And, and it seems to me that what you're describing right there 
um, is related to sort of your task as a poet in looking back into the inherited world and not just missing it because it's gone, but pedagogically using it to sort of help other people, right? And so the past very much can be a burden, right, for, for a lot of people. And so um, instead of just sort of turning your back on it, you're trying to redeem it in some way. And, and that came out to me in that poem that you just read. But there's one particular line about the seat cushion um, and the, <laughs> the plain seat cushion um, <laughs> that I, I, I just – I loved, I went in and I read the whole poem to my wife when I read this, uh, this one. Um, and so let me, uh, if I could set it up just a little bit before you start reading like trees walking, there's a, a, a epigraph, uh, after Mark eight twenty four, And so just for a little bit of context, uh, that's a, um, a, a healing that Jesus has of a blind man. Um, so he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then he spit on the man's eyes and placed his hands on him. Can you see anything? He asked. The man looked up and said, I can see the people, but they look like trees walking around. Once again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. And when he opened them, his sight was restored and he could see everything clearly. And so you really do something interesting with the idea of spitting in your face as a Mm-hmm. As, as a good thing, right? And, and so, yeah. uh, and, and I think I, I'm feeling there's a connection between the poem you just read and maybe a, a concern of this one as well. Could, could you uh, could you read this poem? Absolutely. What a great intro to it. Yes. Uh, like trees walking, after Mark eight twenty four. Like trees, like trees walking. Nothing can ever just be what it is. Not yet a man I see in stages only what I am shown. Once downed and drowning, I will rise, embraced, or so they say, my life vest cushion until that hour, merely a pain in my ass. Spit in my face, then, if that's what it takes. Only let me see the end, the where and the why, full grown. I struggle against the what. Every action, the trial, every word, the last, every one, the adversary, never the who you conceive, growing, perhaps, only unearthed, like trees, like trees walking. Yeah, that, that's my favorite poem of the collection. I don't, is there anything you'd like to say about it? Well, that one was written on an airplane. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I gathered that and I had just yeah, flown. Maybe that's why it stood out to me. So. Yeah. And that, and that is a, uh, and that's a more recent, uh, that, that's a more recent creation compared to the other one that was written in my twenties. This is, you know, written in my forties now. And, and this is where it's helpful to, I think to be, this is the trade-off you make as a non-academic poet is, is the, the circumstances of daily life then are part of what drive the drama that you're working out in the poem. Um, this was me on a very frenzied business travel where I was making a connection. Uh, I have to travel a lot for, for my work and uh, was making a connection. And there was this, this, this frustration of, of, uh, you know, for a number of things really having to, um, credentialize myself with people I hadn't worked with before and really feeling stressed about that and having some meetings with, you know, with, with management, uh, you know, about some things that I was working on. You were just living in this cloud of feeling constantly evaluated, not knowing where things are going and just wishing things could just be kind of 
good enough. And that image of the uncomfortable life vest seat, you know, yeah. uh, that is going to somehow, you know, that that's going to be the thing that, that saves you when, when everything comes down out of the sky, God forbid. Um, it just, I, I had just read that verse this morning and again, or, you know, I had just read that verse that morning. And so all of that sense of, of, uh, in that in that story, it's one of the most enigmatic of the kind of the, the the gospel healings because there's this there's this like enlightenment process to it where the man is partially healed, but his perception isn't right. You know what he sees isn't the reality yet, and it takes a second layer of kind of opening, you know, opening the the objective truth of of his healing to him. Um, and uh, it, yeah, there there was just this kind of tension of well, you know, wouldn't how much how rare that is in anyone's life, um, and it's because we have to go about in this kind of fog of nothing ever just being what it is, you know, always having to make always having to hustle, you know, always having to make that one, you know, that one thing that you're doing count for two things, you know, always having to be thinking about how you're going to, you know, spin good work for, you know, another, uh, you know, how are you going to repurpose that lecture for a different class later, you know, right, <laughs> right, just, yeah. just, you know, nothing is ever just able to rest in its own goodness. And, uh, yeah. So that, that was, that was the experience of, uh, of writing that it, it you know, and, and it was interesting because it was about a three hour flight. It took me about three hours to write that poem. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. So what, where, uh, that you, you said you, uh, you got a laugh out of the, the seat cushion line. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. That line, well, it made me laugh, but then it, that, that what usually when I read poetry and I'm not a, a strong reader of poetry. I, I'm not well versed, and um, it's a, a shameful uh, oversight in my my own personal <laughs> education, um, which I bear per- personal responsibility for. But uh, so when I do read poetry, I tend to kind of I read the whole thing and then sit back and try to f- get a sense of what it you know is doing, and then often there'll be the poems that I really appreciate will have a line that's almost like an open window for me. And I can dive into the poem through that line. And so when I went back and, and, and revisited the line that it kind of amused me, I thought, okay, that really makes a lot of sense. The rest of the, I just related to the rest of the poem in that way through that um, merely a pain in my ass line. And so, yeah, that was uh, that to me really kind of explained the, the moral responsibility you have to struggle through situations and try to understand other people, um, even though you can't at this moment, right? But if you look at them long enough, and you know, theologically, Jesus continues to do work on the man. You know, um, right. that continuing work clarifies and clarifies your vision of the person, and they became less like they become eventually less like trees walking and actual human beings, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah, and so and to me, it was very kind of profound i mean this is that that poem is a clear work of theology um to me um and, and so yeah and i really I, I appreciated it and could relate to it and so i and i just love the um 
the the metaphors that you used. I, I just thought that it was it was very cleverly constructed, and uh, and yeah, I I just I appreciate it. I'm very happy you read it for us. Um, yeah, and and this book is full of stuff like that, folks. Um, I, I it's about an hour. It's a good time to sort of wrap things up. But um, I really highly recommend if you go to the show notes on the Facebook page or you'll find a link to the show notes on the Facebook page or if you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, um, I'll put the uh, link to where you can find the book um, for Finishing Line Press uh, in the show notes. And I really I can't recommend it enough. It's a it's a great little companion piece. And it kind of reminds me um, in its own way. It's very different in a lot of ways. But when I was a kid, my mom had this book. She had this, she would buy anything that was sold as a Christian book, basically, mm-hmm. <laughs> at a yard sale. She anything that was you know pur- purported to be a Christian book, she would buy. And but she did have this little book of poetry by a priest, and I cannot remember the guy's name, but um, it was called "Are You Running with Me, Jesus?" I think is what it was called. Um, and I don't know. I got to start eBaying that. <laughs> <laughs> and it was basically beat poetry. He's like smoking a cigarette on the cover, and I mean he's got this very Kerouacian sort of uh, um, aesthetic to his to his look and the poetry itself, and so you know, and you know, I'm kind of beyond beat poetry <laughs> my own, right. myself, you know, at this point. But I, what struck me is that book, and I used to read it, you know, periodically as a person in my twenties. I, I sort of picked it up and took that one with me when I left the house, and um, is that it's it was really cool to see someone taking a conversation with God and making poetry out of it, right? And in some ways, I feel like the theological work of this book is doing that kind of thing. I think this is much more skillful than that book is uh, and, and much more polished and beautiful. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I don't I don't not recommend that book. It was, uh, I enjoy reading it to this day sometimes. I'm sure I have a tattered copy of it in my office right now somewhere. Um, but yeah, so I, I appreciate what you're doing. I'm really excited that you decided to um, share your time with with us and, and come on and talk about what you're doing, uh, your, your work and, and sharing it with the world. I think it's something that my listeners would really enjoy. And your approach to the world is, uh, or to, through, through your poetry, is very much the way I try to approach the variety of subjects that we cover on this show. As you know, as a longtime listener, there's very kind of a mixed bag of topics from week to week, right? And so when everyone asks me what the show's about, I always have a really hard time explaining that um, because it's more about a way of approaching things that we encounter in the world, right? And and I feel like with the title of this book, that's the way you're approaching um, various experiences in the world. And, and maybe that's why the book spoke to me so much, but I really did enjoy it. And, uh, and I'm very grateful for you to come on, Chris. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Um, anything you'd like to add? Uh, can people follow you anywhere? Or Well, I'm uh, at Chris underscore Buckley on Twitter. Um, that's really my primary social media outlet. I'm, I'm one of those never Facebookers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> ne- never have, you know, so I'm, why start now? And um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, you can follow me there. Um, if you're in Seattle, you know, by all means, I may be, you know, reading at one of the neighborhood readings. Uh, if, if you happen to be in Seattle, come up to, uh, the Northeast corner on a rainy Monday night, uh, to the easy speak Seattle, um, open mic where as often as not, I will be found, you know, say hi, <laughs> say, say that you found us on, uh, on, uh, this podcast. And if I hear that that happened, I will be the happiest person in the world. Um, yeah, I, I will let you know. <laughs> the bridge build, <laughs> whole bridge building thrilled. thing. I feel like that's my New Year's resolution is just to sort of be the bridge, right? And so yeah. um, actually, I don't know. There, I'm sure there is some psychoanalytic reason for that. But I actually, I have a giant like 
panoramic uh, picture of the Brooklyn Bridge in, my, in this office. And um, I actually proposed to my wife on the Brooklyn Bridge at sunrise. And so uh, that's why it's a special place. But uh, but and, and then I just happened to collect all these bridge photos. But it's a nice metaphor for what I try to do as well. So, um, Chris Buckley, thank you so much. This was so much fun uh, to finally get to speak with you. We've interacted so much on Twitter. Um, and you've given me so much good advice about movies and that sort of thing. <laughs> you tried to get me into these Facebook alternatives like mines and all that kind of thing, but it was too, yeah. uh, too cryptocurrency for me to understand. And so, but I, I do appreciate the effort. So. It's a weird one. I like keeping my, uh, my, my fingers on the emerging platforms out there, you know? <laughs> oh man. Well, yeah. I, I think our, I think our first great interaction was a classic Twitter exchange over the sacramental meanings hidden inside, uh, uh, Larry Talbot and uh, Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman movies you know, that, way back at Halloween or so ago. I remember that. That's when we did our Universal Studios uh, uh, crossover for the network. And that's right. I totally remember that now. Um, yeah. And I've actually um, yeah, really enjoyed interacting with you and watching your Twitter feed. You're a super smart guy. I loved your book of poetry. Thanks, Christopher uh, C.W. Buckley, uh, <laughs> author of Bluing from Finishing Line Press. Uh, check it out. Go to the show notes. Let us know what you think um if you have something a message you want me to give to chris uh leave it on the facebook page or wherever and uh and i'll, I'll make sure he gets it um, for everybody listening thanks so much for listening and uh please go out and read this great book of poetry <laughs>